In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's weekly podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin, but currently at home in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments from London, Brussels and Dublin. This week, Brexit just got real. Michael Gove warns of two-day-long queues in Kent involving 7,000 lorries from the 1st of January because not enough companies will have filled in the correct customs paperwork. We'll introduce you to the latest border thrown up by Brexit, the one that will divide Kent from the rest of the UK as a way to stop an impossible tailback at Dover. And we look ahead to what could be the most crucial week in Brexit land for months. The Joint Committee will meet for the first time since the UK announced it would break international law and override parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. A decisive trade negotiation round gets underway on Tuesday. And on Wednesday there's the deadline for the UK to drop the offending clauses of the Internal Market Bill. And EU leaders meet for a summit on Thursday and Friday. But first, Sean is unable to join us this week, so we'll take a cursory first glance at the Independent Republic of Kent. Tony, the British Chamber of Commerce had a list of 26 unanswered questions at this point in the game. I saw a trade expert online expressing some bemusement as to how the situation in Kent had arisen given that there had been so much time to sort a problem like this out. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, a case of forecasting terrible things happening on the 1st of January and the whole question of companies and hauliers not being prepared for the big changes. And this is whether there's a deal or no deal, big changes are going to happen. And what appears to have happened is that in order to prevent a huge tailback at Dover, which is the main source for companies to get their goods across to the European continent. They're going to throw a perimeter around Kent. And as a lorry driver, you you would only get into Kent if you have shown that you have the right paperwork in order to get your goods down to Dover and over the ferry to Calais or other ports. Now, this is all because... Michael Gove has issued a fairly, by his standards, dire prediction of what might happen because so few companies, he says, have shown that they're ready for these new changes on the 1st of January. The government has put forward £84 million to help companies get staffed up or get customs intermediaries or customs agents on board, but it just seems they haven't done it yet. So this picture that Michael Gove is presenting is based on the fact that uh, an awful lot of companies are simply not ready for the changes. They won't be properly compliant. And if they're not compliant, then that would mean problems at the port itself. So what they want to do is create a 
a perimeter around Kent so that you only get into Kent if you're compliant in the first place. With an access so permit. The aforementioned trade expert I mentioned earlier, Dr. Anna Jurzewska, calling it the Kent access permit, calling it the Kermit, which is a, a good nickname for it. I don't know whether she coined it herself, but she has mm. a series of follow-up messages on social media with Kermit the Frog in various stages of the problem of trying to access Kent with this access yeah, permit. There, there have been some very uh, witty acronyms as well. The, the Kent Road Access Permit, etc., uh, etc. Et we don't need to spell those out for right. people. But, I mean, th- this, this again is an indication of the problems that are going to happen on the 1st of January. It's kind of project fear, but this time put out there by the government itself. Now, that is probably... A decision by Michael Gove to, to shock people into getting uh, the paperwork right, making sure that they're ready for Brexit on the 1st of January, because the, the scale of what's required is huge. There's going to be something like 275 million new customs declarations needed annually after Brexit, and that's going to cost about £15 billion. So the bigger exporters know what's involved, but uh, SMEs, of course, it's a different picture and it is one thing for big multinational companies in the UK to send stuff to China, which is, you know, will take take a long time. But it's different when it's just across the channel, where a lot of that freight is just in time produce in both directions. It should be said, and it's you know it has to be done uh, much more quickly. It, it can't be done on the boat necessarily. So these are the disruptions that the government clearly is worried about. Uh, it's right. food and drink. It's pharmaceuticals. It's chemicals. It's cars, it could feed into supply chains, value chains. But it's a strange Um, way of framing it, isn't it? Saying that businesses aren't ready in a way because, you know, if you you look at other countries and both you and I at different times have been to the port of Rotterdam and they have an electronic system and they've explained that, you know, you won't access the port without all the electronic paperwork, if that's not a contradiction in terms. But for the government to say basically the firms aren't ready, it's not like the firms have had an amazing amount of clarity before this or help from the government, for that matter. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, there have been very angry reactions from the, the freight associations who've said that they've been clamouring for detail and clarity from the government uh, for a couple of years now and simply haven't got it. And they've been told that the the IT system that's going to make all this happen might not be ready in time in January. So there's a lot of blame flying around. People are worried about what's, what is what is going to be involved, especially given that Boris Johnson this week announced fairly harsh new COVID restrictions, which could run for another six months. So this would all be unfolding at a time of a potential lockdown, major setbacks to industry production lines, that kind of thing. So it's all shaping up to be a pretty unpleasant couple of months uh, on the UK side. Whatever challenges and difficulties are going to be faced on the EU side, um, of course, traffic goes both ways across the channel and European fleets are going to find that they have a lot of paperwork and a lot of preparations to do as well. Well, from the, Irish end of the, like... from the Irish end of things, Britain being the land bridge and the quickest route for freight to pass from Ireland into continental Europe, there's now a growing clamour from the Irish Road Haulage Association for faster routes to be developed directly to the continent precisely because of this concern. The 40-hour ferry time that it takes for trucks to get over at this stage they want something faster than that because that's considerably longer than it would be when things are going according to plan to get across the uk 
That's right, and we've discussed the land bridge before on this podcast. Uh, some 80% of goods going from Ireland to the rest of the single market use the UK land bridge simply because it is quicker to get there compared to taking a ferry to Cherbourg or wherever. And of course, they have opened up new ferry routes from Ireland to the European continent, but that takes time uh, and it's still not going to be quick enough for companies that need just-in-time exports and companies especially that send food to uh, the continent and you know a lot of Irish food producers agri-food producers are looking now at the continent as their preferred market because of Brexit so this is going to be a major problem for freight organizations and food exporters how are they going to get around the problem of getting entangled in the traffic flows going through Kent to Dover and getting across to Calais uh, and then getting through to other uh, European ports. And uh, of course, in the future relationship negotiations, the Irish government managed to get the whole question of the land bridge onto Michel Barnier's negotiating mandate. Both sides are supposed to take account of Ireland's unique geographic position, but uh, right. You know, but the, what is the Irish Hall Road Hall? Difficult. Yeah, as the Irish Road Haulage Association was pointing out during the week, it's not like there are green painted trucks that will be given special access to the port on the UK side. They'll be stuck in the traffic jam like everybody else. Yeah, I mean, at, at a certain point, people were talking about you know priority boarding for Irish trucks fast tracked through. <laughs> Good luck with that. So, sounds great in practice, but can you imagine, <laughs> you know how? British truck drivers might feel if they see Seamus and Paddy flying past with yeah. their Irish trickler flying from the back of the, um, the the cabin. Also, not just British truck drivers, but there's an awful lot of Polish and Lithuanian truck drivers who would make deliveries in the UK from Europe and then would have to go back either empty-handed or having picked up something from, from the UK and under the cabotage rule. So they would be pretty cheesed off as well if they were stuck in a traffic jam as European drivers uh, and seeing the Irish kind of sail past merrily on their way. So so those those ideas look good in pa- on paper, but you know don't look so good in practice. And it's not really clear if much progress has been made on the land bridge issue in the negotiations or even around the negotiations. Certainly, you know, we ran a story there a few weeks back on the RT website about the UK telling Ireland, if you help us out on the protocol in Northern Ireland, if you convince the EU to be a lot more pragmatic and flexible on how the protocol is implemented, then, you know, we'll scratch your back uh, on the land bridge issue. Nice. Um, and that was uh, an offer that the Irish government resisted because, again, it's the kind of bilateralism that Ireland has been very wary of uh, going all the way back. It caused them to question exactly how reliable any promise would be. The negotiations that are taking place next week, Tony, I heard at the European Commission briefing this morning, the first question up was to, to the European Commission spokesperson was, there are rumours going around that there is optimism about what might happen next week. Why is there this cause for optimism? And the European Commission was... Well, they weren't downplaying it. They just said Michel Barnier says he's determined to get a deal, but he's neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Is that a real reflection, or are you detecting optimism in advance of next week? Well, as you know, uh, optimism waxes and wanes uh, terribly on, on, on this podcast. I mean, I'm feeling rather pessimistic this, this week just based on, on conversations I've had in the, in the first part of the week and, and insights that I've got into European Commission thinking. 
I mean, effectively, we've been round the houses for months now on the technical aspects of the things that are holding a free trade agreement up, namely uh, fisheries, state aid, the level playing field, right. police and judicial cooperation, and the whole question of governance, in other words, how to resolve disputes as they arise in the future. And of course, now that the internal market bill has reared its ugly head, that means that a total slump in trust on the EU side means that the backdrop to these negotiations next week are not the not the greatest anyway. Well, are they but limited both- in what they can achieve, though? Because, I mean, the two negotiating sides have their mandate from political leaders are we at the stage now, and this is a point yourself and Sean have made repeatedly, that there's only so much Michel Barnier and David Frost can do under their current mandate. It would require possibly a political shift coming from the European Council and the British government to move things forward. That's true. And of course, everyone is looking to the summit on the 14th and 15th of October. Uh, Boris Johnson has said that that is as far as he was concerned, the real deadline for a deal. I suppose there are two scenarios that could unfold next week. Either there is a big breakthrough between the negotiating teams. It's a very packed agenda in the negotiations. The the talks are going to happen in Brussels. And let's say they do suddenly make those big, bold, ambitious leaps and, and manage to get enough confidence and optimism in place so that they can start drafting the legal text immediately the following week and that would give them effectively you know the guts of a month to jointly draft a treaty uh, because because they haven't done any joint drafting yet at all they're still you know stuck in the trenches over state aid and fisheries and so on are there contingency Uh, drafts in a drawer somewhere so they can be produced like a cookery program with the words here's what i baked earlier not really i mean the, the the eu has its draft which it presented in March, um, and the UK has its draft, which it presented, I think, a short time later. But they're two entirely different drafts. So you need to start sitting down and working through the principles and ideas, putting them into legal text. And, you know, negotiators say that's when, you know, you, you really start to see a landing zone taking shape. You know, once you start to drill down into the details of, of a legal text, you know, as, as you start to solve each micro problem as you go then you know a bigger picture starts to appear but of course you can only do that if you have principal agreement on both sides and then come the 14th and 15th of October you have the European Council and that's when things could get interesting because if Michel Barnier does have to drift from his negotiating mandate that he got from member states then it will have to go up to leaders at the summit and they'll have to decide to, to tap the brakes a bit or to say, okay, we're, we, we can live with that, we can live with the other, let's go. The problem is that, you know, there are different interests uh, that different member states have and it's, you know, all of the main issues are, are still kind of open. So that could get messy and that's even if there's a, you know, a benign scenario. It's probably worth mentioning this idea of the Taoiseach principle uh, or theory, you know, this brings us back to a year ago when everything seemed to be stuck and there was a lot of bad blood flying around. Suddenly Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar meet in Liverpool. They have a walk in the, in the grounds of the hotel. Next thing, uh, a deal has been cooked up by the pair of them. And within two weeks, we have a withdrawal agreement mm. intact and right. approved by EU leaders. We, so we had it then. This time around. Or so he thought. So he thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, is this format going to be dusted down again 
Mihal Martin, well, pe- perhaps yeah, sent I mean, around the garden are, with Boris Johnson. People are talking about, you know, who, who's the Taoiseach this time around? Who's the Deus Ex Machina who will descend and take Boris's hand through the, a, a, a glade, a, a tree-lined glade, and uh, get get a deal done? Um, yeah, and stick the, the two papers together time, and roll something up in this exactly. tree-lined glade. Yeah, trouble is, last time around, Boris Johnson was desperate for a deal. He wanted to get Brexit done. He was desperate to have an agreement with the EU that he could then take into a general election and win that election, which he did, of course, comfortably. This time around, a lot of people in Brussels think he doesn't actually want a deal. They're not convinced that he is uh, of a mind to have an agreement, that he's too swayed by people like Dominic Cummings and even David Frost, his chief negotiator. And again, this time last year, there was only one issue holding up uh, the treaty, and that was Ireland. And the other 26 leaders were quite content, and the European Commission were quite content to hear Leo Varadkar out. What had he agreed with Boris Johnson? If the Taoiseach was happy, then the other EU leaders were happy, as long as the Commission could you know, run the slide rule over it and see if it was all legal and legit. And that's what happened. But this time around, there's more than one issue at stake. There are lots of issues, and lots of different member state, states have issues with those issues. Like so, fish. Like fish, exactly. Like state aid, like police and judicial cooperation. None of these are the, the magic key that, that will unlock uh, an agreement. Does that break um, down on a particular member state basis? Like, So we know fish are, is, you know, the Dutch, the Belgians, the French, to a certain extent, mm, the Irish as ourselves. well. Yeah. Are there particular member states who are particularly hung up on state aid or who are particularly hung up on judicial cooperation that would be regarded as the go-to state in order to satisfy on any of these things? Well, I think a lot of countries that would be directly challenged by the UK in whatever sector of the economy would be absolutely worried about state aid. Because the thing is that this treaty is meant to last for decades and you know nobody wants to sign away their protective defensive interests in a hurry, in a rush in October, in a way that is fuzzy and legally open to challenge. Denmark, the Netherlands, they are all absolutely worried about the UK having, you know, having high quality access to the single market and yet being able to undercut Europe uh, through uh, some kind of state aid fix. And the UK negotiators will always tell you that Look, we were never the big offenders when it came to state aid. It was always the French and the Germans. Sure, but that was that, that. But that was before they had somebody who was a senior advisor in Downing Street stating on the record that they wanted the equivalent of ARPA, the American sort of science brains trust that would pump a lot of investment into inventive kind of industries. But can Britain give state aid to things it exports outside the European Union, or do the state aid rules apply to the things it's? exporting to just the European Union, or is it a blanket state aid rule? Well, to, to, to break that down a bit, um, I mean, principally, they want an agreement on that both sides will sign up to that is legally coherent and durable, that will cover trade and goods between, between both sides. Um, and, you know, the UK would have its own interest in making sure that its firms aren't undercut by... Um, you know, European companies. And of course, at the moment, a lot of this is kind of up in the air because with the COVID pandemic, European governments have been pumping money right, left and centre into companies to keep them afloat. 
And it's all being waved through by, by the European Commission, state aid and competition uh, officials who say in extreme circumstances like we have at the moment, yes, that's permitted and it's permitted under the treaties. Um, when it comes to the UK trading overseas, it's an interesting point because throughout the negotiations, the UK has apparently been saying to the EU, we want simple state aid provisions that you get uh, under the World Trade Organization or what you gave to Canada in, in the EU-Canada agreement. The EU says, of course, time and again, it's not the same. You're not Canada. You're a, a much bigger economy right on our doorstep. But all the time, the UK were insisting on the kind of state aid provisions that were in the uh, EU-Canada agreement. Suddenly, the UK concludes a free trade treaty with Japan. And in that agreement, there are tougher state aid requirements than there are in the EU-Canada ag- arrangement. Uh, and this baffled uh, commission officials who were saying, well, you were telling us you didn't want anything more onerous than Canada. Now you've signed up to something a, a good bit more onerous with Japan. <laughs> what right. gives the UK are saying, well, we, we still want to have basic provisions at the level of principles, nothing too strenuous or legally binding. But at the beginning, were the UK not told, look, you're not getting a special deal, you're getting a pro forma deal. You're either Norway or you're Canada, but we're not having a, a bespoke deal for you. And obviously, and I, I accept this is going back quite some time before they got, got into the weeds on negotiating, you know, the withdrawal agreement, the political declaration, etc. But that is correct, isn't it? They were told well, that, well, it'll it be is, Canada yeah. or Norway. And, and yeah, now I mean, Canada's off the it, table. Yeah, it is correct in, in that... The by a process of elimination, if you look at what happens if the UK comes out of the single market and out of the customs union, then it starts to tumble down the famous staircase in, in Michel Barnier's famous graphic in that it, by its own demand, it can't have the kind of relationship that Norway has uh, or Switzerland has. So it or Switzerland has for the, for the moment having... we'll see how that goes after the referendum on Sunday when they try when they put the question of restricting freedom of travel from the European Union up for grabs yeah. but anyway sorry go on yeah. what the EU was saying to the UK was well according to your own preferences you will only get a free trade agreement that is like Canada but that doesn't mean they're getting Canada they would get Canada with a level playing field attached so in other words Yes, if you're if you're not prepared to be in the single market or customs union, then we will have a relationship like Canada. But they're also getting zero tariff and zero quotas, whereas the Canadian deal does have some tariffs and quotas on agriculture, for example. So what the EU is saying is, look, you know, you're getting something that's better than Canada. We don't give zero tariffs, zero quotas to any other third country partner in the world. We're offering it to you, but in return, we want a level playing field on how we compete with each other. I mean, that's basically putting it in, in fairly simple terms. So the choreography of next week, as we say, you know, the, the, the talks are ongoing. There is a summit at the end of the week, but that summit is supposed to be looking as in, well, first of all, it was supposed to happen this week. And then Charles Michel was in contact with somebody who was infected with COVID. So it got shunted out for another week. But the issue of Turkey, its drilling activities in the eastern Mediterranean and the relationship between Cyprus, Greece and Turkey is supposed to be up for discussion and the main meat of that. Now, we've heard this about summits before. And then true to form, Brexit shows up like a dose of COVID and spoils it all on everyone. What's the story this for this week's or next week's one? Are we going to see Brexit on the menu? Well, it's on the menu as an what they call an information point. So this is basically going to be a very brief 
presentation by Michel Barnier on the state of play in the negotiations, uh, and I assume he'll talk about the internal market bill uh, and the problems there. Um, as an information point, it means that the other leaders will not give a round-the-table response in, in each one in turn. Uh, so it's going to be a fairly brief presentation by Michel Barnier, and they will leave it at that. Of course, when leaders arrive, uh, even though it's going to be a fairly restricted summit in terms of access for media because of the um, social distancing rules, uh, but leaders will be probably asked uh, you know, about Brexit uh, when they arrive, bearing in mind that the deadline for the UK to, ha to have dropped the offending elements of the internal market bill will have passed just the day before on Wednesday. Uh, so that's why, um, you know, th there's going to be an elephant-sized chair in the room yeah. uh, when Mr. Barnier speaks and, and the, the, the deadline will have come and gone and the UK won't uh, have dropped the, um, the, the the key elements. And of what's the, the word on that? Bill. Because we were, we were looking at that in a, in a previous podcast. What does the EU then do if those provisions in the internal market bill are not are not removed. Well, well, then we we get into a really complicated kind of game of of, of chicken. A, a, I mean, it's I've been looking at the permutations here, but I mean, effectively, the UK is holding out for changes or modifications or interpretations of the Northern Ireland Protocol before they even begin to. Uh, consider dropping the legislation. Now, all of this is complicated by the fact that the legislation will still be in the House of Lords when the EU's deadline for agreeing the free trade agreement has come and gone. That's October the 31st. Now, the EU has said, we're not going to agree this free trade agreement unless you drop the legislation. But there could be some elaborate you know, mechanism whereby an agreement is reached in in principle or on the condition that the UK drops the offending legislation by right. the end of the year, because Co of course transition period not ends on thirty first of December. Or, or exactly, such. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the European Parliament might have a role there because the European Parliament has to give its consent to the treaty before it can be ratified. And the the main groups in the Parliament have already said that they won't give their approval to the agreement if it doesn't keep the protocol untouched and uh, that there's nothing there that can override elements of the protocol. Now, this is where the Joint Committee, uh, which we mentioned at the beginning meeting on Monday, uh, is very important because the concerns that the UK has regarding the protocol relate to the state aid effect. We, we talked about this before, this so-called reach-back effect, so that EU state aid rules apply in Northern Ireland, but in certain circumstances, that could be extended to the rest of the UK if a parent company subsidises one of its subsidiaries in Northern Ireland, uh, or rather, if the UK government subsidises a parent company that has a subsidiary in Northern Ireland. That's where the reach-back effect could be triggered. The UK doesn't like that, even though that was always part of the picture going way back to Theresa May. And they want to get that either clarified or removed altogether at a stretch. They also want to get the EU to be way more flexible in exit summary declarations. They want those to be dropped completely. That's for goods going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. And they want to do something on the at-risk definition of goods that come from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Of course, as we've discussed many times before, if any of the goods coming into Northern Ireland are at risk of crossing the border in order to circumvent a higher EU tariff, then 
the UK would have to collect a tariff on those goods. And for goods that are not at risk, then there could be a rebate system or an exemption or whatever. That's all going to be worked out by this joint committee. Um, Now, the problem is that the way the protocol was written is that if both sides in the joint committee don't reach agreement on how you define what's at risk and what mechanisms you put in place for collecting tariffs or rebating tariffs and so on, if agreement isn't reached by the end of the transition at the end of December, then the default is that everything is deemed at risk. So from the EU's point of view, that's an incentive for the UK to actually get real and try and work this thing out. For the UK, that's an intolerable situation that every good going from Northern to Northern Ireland from the 1st of January would be deemed at risk and needing a tariff. So that's the kind of scrap that they have yet to have in the joint committee. The problem now is, of course, that the UK has effectively put a gun to the EU's head saying, resolve this to our liking or we are going to invoke the legislation that allows us as a sovereign country to overwrite what we have already agreed in the uh, protocol. Sorry, so there is a basis for the UK to override this, is there? But there's just disagreement. Well, there isn't. No, there's no legal basis. There's no legal basis because what the the way the protocol, the issues that they have about the protocol have already been negotiated in the treaty and signed off by Boris Johnson and ratified by the House of Commons. What the UK is saying is that the, the EU could interpret the protocol in bad faith and in that situation they would have this legislation in place as a safety net the trouble there is that that's a unilateral interpretation of what bad faith is which could it be interpreted it in itself as being bad faith well it, it is interpreted already by the eu they believe that there's a already a breach of the good faith provision right. in, in, in the withdrawal agreement so you, you can see how all of this kind of high wire <laughs> you know the last 15 minutes of a movie is being right played out against this backdrop of, of real lack of trust right. and and things escalating you know week by week. Okay, well, as we look down the tunnel of the next couple of weeks, are we anywhere near a tunnel? Because like, if, if, if optimism was based in reality, there would be a shift towards some kind of a negotiating tunnel in which a deal, you know, that the, the prospect of a deal would be hammered out in confidence without leaks, etc., etc., in the way that the tunnel works. You're not seeing any sign of that, are you? No, I mean, when you asked me earlier there about, you know, what, what's going to happen with the summit and so on in, in October, I was, I was saying, well, there's, there's two scenarios. One is the optimistic scenario where, you know, th- there is a breakthrough across the board next week in the negotiations. Right, give us the Armageddon then. The scenario is, is that, you know, next week, the, the gaps are just too wide and they can't be they can't be bridged. Now, in that situation, you can't start drafting a legal text. Then it you could have another round of negotiations. But like, what's going to change? Then you'd have the the leader summit in the middle of October, and they would say, "Well, we can either just describe this parrot as a dead parrot, or we can have another high level conference. Get Boris Johnson over. He meets." Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, and Charles Michel, the, the Council President, and they try and do something at the last minute. But again, you know, it would have to take a big leap, a big leap by both sides. And I'm not just not detecting that the willingness is there, certainly on the EU side, to move further, substantially further than it has. And the complaint from the EU is basically this. They, they accept that the UK is not going to sign up to EU rules. They accept that the UK is not going to swallow the EU's state aid rules uh, in perpetuity or at all. What they want in, in as, as a second best is, well, 
let's negotiate and construct something, some kind of arrangement that is legally coherent, uh, that is durable, that has robust dispute resolution mechanisms attached. And we can't do that until you spell out what your future legislation is going to look like, whether that is on state aid, on data protection, on emissions trading for the energy component of the treaty. And what the EU is saying is that the UK is simply not telling us what what their future rulebook across the board is going to look like. So how can we commit to a legally sound and coherent a treaty with them in the absence of those things. Now the UK will will dispute that, saying that they have they've given them plenty of indication of what they intend to do. But you know it's up to the House of Commons to to legislate on what rules British people are subject to. So they can't second guess their future uh, rulebook. And what this boils down to is a fundamental difference in ideology and philosophy that has dogged the negotiations to date and. You know, if, if that bridge is going to be, if that gap is going to be bridged, it has to happen next week, <laughs> or I don't think I don't think it's going to happen at all. So that's why I'm fairly pessimistic that you know things are going to uh, unfold in, a, in an optimistic way. Right. Okay. Thanks, Tony. That's it for this week. With from me, Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor, broadcasting from a bedroom in Kildare. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, broadcasting from an office in Brussels. Thanks for listening.